Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how you doing today, sir? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing quite well. I'm excited about this conversation we're about to have. Yes, we are very privileged to have Dr. Farina King joining us today, and we will turn it over to her briefly to introduce herself, and then we will tell you a little bit more about her. Yat e she bilagana nishli do kiyaani bashishchin bilagana dashache do sinijani dashanale akot egoatsa nishli Farina King yinishye. Hi everyone, my name is Farina King. I introduced myself by my Navajo, as we call ourselves, Dene, Dene clans. It's important for us to explain um, our family history in that way and where where we come from and our relations so we can connect. We're matrilineal, so we acknowledge the woman and maternal line of our family first. And my mother is of English, American, white settler descent. And then we say we are born for our father's clans and people. And I'm born for the towering house and black streaked woods clan of my father. And those are um, Dene, Dene peoples and clans. Um, from New Mexico, what's considered New Mexico part of uh, Navajo Nation. And I'm a citizen of Navajo Nation. So that's my uh, Dene introduction to recognize my eh, my kin, and my relations and, and how we connect. Thank you very much, Dr. King. Uh, Dr. Farina King is also an assistant professor of history at Northeastern State University. She is also an affiliate of the Cherokee and Indigenous Studies Department and the director of the NSU Center for Indigenous Community Engagement. During the 2016-2017 academic year, Dr. Farina was the David J. Weber Fellow for the Study of Southwestern America at the Clement Center for the Southwest Studies of Southern Methodist University. She earned her Ph.D. in U.S. History at Arizona State University in 2016. Her first book, The Earth Memory Compass, Diné Landscapes and Education in the 20th Century, was published by the University Press of Kansas in October of 2018. She was the Charles Eastman Dissertation Fellow 2015-2016 at Dartmouth College. She received her MA in African History from the University of Wisconsin and a BA from Brigham Young University with a double major in History and French Studies. She has studied several languages including French, Portuguese, Yoruba, Wolof, and Navajo. Her main area of research is colonial and post-colonial indigenous studies, primarily indigenous experiences of colonial and distant education. Farina has written and presented about indigenous Mormon experiences in the 20th century, drawing from some interviews that she conducted for the Latter-day Saint Native American Oral History Project at the Charles Red Center for Western Studies. Her research traces the changes in Navajo educational experiences through the 20th century using a hybrid approach of the Diné Four Directions. Her greatest inspirations are her family, especially her children. Other than learning different languages and having fun with their family, Dr. Farina loves to sing, dance, and travel. <laughs> Dr. Farina King is that woman. Just letting wow. y'all know. She, uh, 
if that if it wasn't clear by now, she she is she is that boss woman. So we are so honored to have her on. Uh, even just reading that now, I'm just like she really carved out time for us. So yeah. uh, we we gonna make the most of this, Doctor King. And uh, again, we're so honored to have you and to have this conversation with us. You, you, you. know a little bit about what we're about, so uh, we're just gonna get straight into it with uh, the subject of our discussion and just start asking some questions. Okay. Thank you for having me. We want to talk a little bit about the relationship that uh, Mormonism has with, you know, just the just the just the people that originally inhabited this land that we're on, and uh, we want to talk about that relationship. We want to dig into the weeds a little bit, and uh, I suppose the first question we want to use as a jump-off point is: Can you talk to us a little bit about? the methods of colonization that are unique to Mormonism as it pertains to the indigenous peoples. Mm -hmm. Um, So to start off about that, I think it's often difficult for Americans in general to think of and understand our own forms of colonialism. So as a historian who has focused on broad historical developments in the United States where I teach these survey classes and explore American history on on a broad scale, you know, a general sense. Um, Settler colonialism and colonialism, it often is used in those terms, on those terms, thinking about pre-revolutionary era, you know, before the American Revolution. That's where Americans in our minds think that's when we were colonies because the the colonies were the colonies to the British, you know, the English. And then we freed ourselves and, and colonialism's over in the United States. And they whitewash and overlook and marginalize Native American histories in general. I I meet people who come in and talk to me and I tell them, introduce myself in Diné, or I tell them I'm Native American, I identify as such, and they'll be surprised and think, what, you're not all extinct or or whatever. Um, And I've had these really crazy experiences in that way because for a lot of Americans, including Latter-day Saints who are who become a part of this national American story and, and they get swept up and are actually a, a big part, not just a part, but I would argue a big part of um, Western expansion of the United States, even if they didn't necessarily see themselves as such, right, whether we're conscious of it or not. And um, with Mormons, uh, and I'm using that term historically, too, because I understand These are all connected to the establishment of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints with Joseph Smith and then Brigham Young and their journeys of trying to develop um, a community of of believers and and the persecution that they faced as they're trying to find refuge and a place to build their Zion, right? And, And where is Zion and where will they gather? But they are a big part of um, you know these these branches of what I consider um, the the growth and expansion of of an American empire, and that American hegemony 
of what what would be the United States, even if you have these groups like the church and they certainly had their conflicts and did not, um, you know, in the case of Brigham Young getting Utah, um, organizing Utah, what would become Utah, the state of Utah and the role he played there as it as it became a, a territory settled by Mormons. Um, there you had Buchanan's the Utah War and and these tensions of where they they doubted they um, questioned and were at odds with the United States government and other state governments right in Missouri that had an ex um, an extermination order against Mormons so it's quite ironic that you know you have this group of Mormons who are persecuted who are at odds with the United States government but um, how there's these convergences of interests and change in direction where Utahns of, well, Mormons who set up a big, a major presence and, and their community in what becomes Utah, they then feed that back into and it connects with the United States as, as it becomes, you know, they push Utah eventually to become a, a state, a part of the United States. And they are another form of um, European American, predominantly, right? European immigrants who um, get who have this mixed American identity that forms coming coming to North America, and so they're a part of this uh, influx of European American settlers. So while there's um, a lot of distinction and difference, there's also so much in common, um, whether it was intentional or not, of um, the way that European Americans viewed Native Americans, and most importantly, how they viewed and craved, desired, fought for land. You know, that's at the heart of it. And that's the common thread with um, the American story of settler colonialism as well and and where it intersects with what what would also become um the racial hierarchies racial constructs uh white supremacy along with that and and native americans are so central to this because of this term indigenous that we're talking about that all of north america all these lands they were uh the homelands right and they are they are the homelands of indigenous peoples who have been living and um, a key part of their identities, who they are as a people, it's inseparable to the lands. The lands are are who they are. It's a part of who who um, people are as Dene, as indigenous, as Shoshone, as Ute, right? Is knowing the names of those rivers, knowing um, the mountains, knowing how to live with the land and not in like how we, have heard recently and, and over the years a romanticized, it's been romanticized and stereotyped of Native Americans only living at one with nature as if Native Americans were like the trees or a part of nature, right? right. A part of the wild. They get stereotyped as such. No, they, they cultivated the land. They um, did manipulate the land for their uses, right? But they, but the land becomes very uh, much integral to who uh, indigenous people are, and who they were. So land is at the heart of of all these um, issues and conversations because when you have that 
invasion and that's what it was whether people see it or not right an intrusion of people coming in and and this is the case with um, mormon settlers and and the establishment of the church in in parts of what we now see as the wasatch front in in utah and all that um when they come in and they say oh this is all wilderness and they're just completely overlooking that they know there's indigenous people who live there and they have a fear of them and that's still a part of our legacy that whenever we're learning about um in general a lot of people when they're learning about these pioneer stories they they frame the the mormon pioneers as these heroes who persevere and endure and they did have have many trials of going on this journey in this exodus that they had but then there's the irony of of they're coming on a land and claiming it as their own and saying, well, no one else is here and we have, you know, a God-given right. This is, it, it goes in line with manifest destiny, um, doctrine of discovery. You know, I think that's why a lot of Latter-day Saints do, um, and I, I'm going to say idolize where, or revere, uh, you know, but it gets on a very delicate, uh, it's a very delicate line of idolizing and revering, but they revere Christopher Columbus and, and that Ooh. narrative about him. Yep. Yeah. Don't even get me started on Christopher Columbus. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm sure you got plenty to say about him too, but. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think what I'm trying to emphasize is is there's more in common with um, American settler colonialism than not, but then understanding these um the different and distinct experiences for Latter-day Saints who were seeking to find a home, but then it's the home at whose expense, a home that they're they're claiming. It, it's sort of like the story of Goldilocks and, and the three bears, right? And I tell my kids this when I'm trying to explain on a very basic level. You have someone coming in and they enter someone's house they take their porridge, they take everything, and yep. and then they're the victims all of a sudden <laughs> when the bears come home and they're like, the bears are trying to eat me, what, what's going on, you know? And, and it's mm-hmm. like, well, you just entered their home and you're taking all their food and you're kicking them out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're going to fight mm-hmm. because that's their home. That's everything yeah. to them. Mm-hmm. And then when you're telling this story, you're saying, they stole our food, they stole everything from us, they were the killers, you know, as if treating native americans as they were wild animals you know trying to attack them and such and mm-hmm. and that's how i think a, a lot of these stories are still being propagated and framed in that way um and then adding a tone of people's spiritual interpretations of that right that um understanding brigham young as uh, for a lot of people they do not want to think of him as a colonizer like colonialism and colonizing especially you know for americans as i said it has a negative context a negative connotation and mm-hmm. we think of oh that was you know the king of england who was oppressing the colonies but then look in the mirror and see where are we uh being a part of colonizing mechanics and projects ourselves and i think um unlike other time other times we have more scholars we have more um, everyday people who are trying to learn and understand the past that they are understanding. Yes, this these were colonizing projects and, and it is in our language, right? That Brigham Young would send um, Latter-day, Saint, Latter-day Saints into different parts and told them go colonize, go settle these areas. But um, on the other end of it, it, it was always in, in a, 
the way it was framed was as if this is wilderness and you just need to go cultivate it and settle it. But um, it's not like not anybody wilderness. else lives there. Right. Yeah, it's not wilderness to indigenous people. And that's my biggest point, too. This this language matters because for indigenous people, that's their home and that's how they live. And when when they're pushed out of that, that that's pushing them to. Um, you know, extermination. That's where the tables turn and, and Latter-day Saints who are running away from extermination orders and seeking a better life, they're pushing that on another people by by displacing them and, and taking limited resources and, and then uh, the kind of conflicts that, uh, that evolve into massacres and violence and um, also forms of forced labor, which, are, which we can talk about as well, um, and how language is always uh, seeking to, you know, it, it's creating euphemisms, it's creating um, almost like a polite language of, no, this wasn't slavery. We just, we bought the slaves from the youths who said they would kill these children if we didn't buy them. And then we adopted, we adopted native children into our homes. So this is something I'm learning about as an adult that never, I learned, I never learned this in school. I, we didn't have these kind of conversations. So even just learning about these histories and starting to unpack them, like what did it mean when Latter-day Saints had um, Indian adoption? How did that really play out? And, and what were these circumstances? That's where you get into the particulars and you're learning and unpacking more. But I think the, a key distinction is that um, Brigham Young, you know, he was a prophet and seen as a prophet um, an instrument of God, of, of the Lord, right? And so that adds that layer of, um, the, the layers of Latter-day Saint uh, interpretations of gospel, doctrine, um, religious language, and, and with Native Americans, the big whammy here, the big difference as well among uh among different Christian denominations and understandings is uh, the Book of Mormon, right? The, the, where the namesake of that moniker, right, of Mormon comes from, Book of Mormon, and the story, stories and narratives of Nephites and Lamanites and how Joseph Smith, you know, beginning at, with the founding of the church, he um, connected and identified Native Americans as a part of the descendants of Lamanites who were these ancient civilizations in um, the Americas, argu arguably, you know, from from different Latter-day Saint perspectives. So that also complicates it, but um, it's similar to other groups as well, where there's a binary of, is the Indian a savage or the noble, the noble Indian or the savage Indian? And um, for Latter-day Saints, it was framed at, in that binary too sometimes of um, Native Americans were meant to be noble. They, they are uh, the chosen people who are the Lamanites and, and the Book of Mormon was written for them, especially, and they will rise, they will lead the way in Zion, but then they're savage when they're seen as um, the adversaries and, and the, block, the block to the cultivation and civilization of um, lands and territories that would become Utah, for example, or wherever, you know, Latter-day Saints settled even if they came into Nauvoo or whatever, there were indigenous peoples there before them, but previous waves of other uh, white settler colonialism and European-American colonialism pushed those people um, 
out and and dispossess them so that's something i'm excited as well to talk about as as all this is it's really complicated and intricate yeah so i have two questions for you in in our church we have this large machinery around a core related curriculum and how we craft our stories and how we celebrate the pioneers and how we tell the history of the colonization of the west so here are my two questions for you one is how should we tell the story differently? And two, who should tell the story? Yeah, those that is those are the big questions with history, right? Is how we tell our stories and who gets to tell the stories. And I mean that that goes back to the basics of, of where we often hear people say things like the victors in history, they tell the stories. Mm-hmm. But um I don't really I don't really like that um that phrase or or that common phrase as much because it then frames history only as a, a tale of losers and winners and again it's we i think humans what we often do is we like to simplify things so we can process it and just have it there but um what i tell everyone often <laughs> more often than i realize probably is I say, hey, it is complicated and that's not just to get out of it. It's that we need to look into this web and understand it. And with history, um, something that is so, it it's so powerful for me and draws me in is that there are so many threads to a story. I see it as a web. And um, in terms of in indigenous ways, I even see it as a tapestry, what we would call, it, you know, our weavings. And there's all these different threads. And together, you know, they weave together. Um, what is that image? What, what is history? What happened in the past? But each part is integral. And so um, can we have multiple narratives all interweaving at once and, and it's in balance and harmony and and for me um understanding a lot of Diné in indigenous ways a, a key teaching in Diné Diné ways is a sana hajon and that's been translated simply as walk in beauty but a lot is lost in translation you can't really um grasp what it what it fully means in another language but um, when I say beauty, hajo, what that really is is meaning is balance, harmony. You know, where's the harmony? Where's the balance? Are you moving forward in life? And and it's not just a linear track. It's very cyclical. That um, a lot of indigenous peoples, and I know for Dene, we we see. Um, life and all things in four directions and the cycle and that's something I explore in my book the earth memory compass and why I think it's important to begin addressing your question in that way is that even the way that people think about or define history what is history what are these stories that's the first you know that's a first step and people are approaching it and understanding these terms on completely different sides of the spectrum, you know, and just they're everywhere. And um, when when we're talking in English, we're often thinking in terms of what's been established by academia and that had a Eurocentric model 
And it privileged and only emphasized that, no, there's only one way to tell history. And I still see this and I see it in books being written today about Mormon history, these histories that are entangled with all these diverse peoples, uh, whether they're identified as Native American. I mean, even when we say Native American, these constructs we're using because the net, they didn't, we didn't call ourselves Native American, you know, until you have these confrontations and, and meeting points with um, others who identify you and shape you, right? And, and then we're introduced to, well, this is what history is. You have to have these dates and this is how you think of time and it's a linear model and there's winners and there's losers, you know, and that's not even indigenous ways of understanding our past. You know, and we, all these diverse peoples, we have our own ways of, that we've been telling since time immemorial, our stories, our past, which often have been, um, otherized right they've been marginalized as legends myth you know oral traditions you can't trust oral sources it has to be documented written and i had to slap my hand here um it had to be documented and written down that's that's the attitude and language of of a lot of historians but then who wrote things who wrote things down who does that who does that put as authority just because it's written down is that truth can can a person not lie on a on a piece of paper? Does that make it you know better than an an oral source that was integral to people's societies and communities? So that's something that um, I don't want to say. Oh, these are the ones who have to tell the story because I do think um, the way I think about history is you have these moments of convergences at, that even if people come from the same family they come from the same place and they're all in that that space in that at that time and that moment and something happens we all have our own window that we're seeing and experiencing and per you know just the perception of what's going on and while all all those witnesses who are there all those people who who experience something that happened in the past they're each going to have a different story and to me that's okay. That's that's the beauty of it. That is real. Is that's the harmony and the balance that all that weaves together and that's what tells the story. So it's not even just a story of Native Americans and Mormons, right? But there were Native Americans who joined the church, who embraced the teachings of the Book of Mormon and um, even appropriate them, you know, see them through specifically a Shoshone, a Ute, or a Diné lens, you know, as we're talking about a lot of those people in what is now considered the areas of, of Utah, for instance. And um, they're going to see and perceive those experiences very different from someone like Brigham Young or um, these other Latter-day Saints uh, from that time. Um, my my husband, I married into a family who have a lot of uh, these early pioneers. I mean, he he's... Um, Jan Shodal was one of his ancestors, and he was a Swedish um, Mormon linguist and an immigrant who, who came in and, and came and played a big part in interpreting the Book of Mormon. So someone like him would have a completely different lens of looking at things in the past than Brigham Young. But I think as historians, we want as many of these stories as possible to try 
and understand, you know, go up close to look at the trees, but back up and also see the forest that it, you have to see it in this multidimensional, um, you know, very intricate way. And, and that's what we as humans and I, I believe our potential is with with our minds, you know, the abilities that we have, even on a spiritual sense of um, understanding the this beautiful, intricate and complicated web of humanity and of you know realities on on a physical and even medical uh, metaphysical way as well that people you know sense and relate to what's going on uh what they're experiencing what has happened so um i think your question though also gets at well who who tells these stories the the issue that i think that that question is pointing to is that um for so long, certain groups and people, they're fighting and saying, this is the story, the truth, you know, this is, this is it, this, this is the legitimate, this is the authority. And that delegitimizes that, that um, it's, it turns into a power struggle, it becomes political, because as you see with what's happening with monuments, and why are people, you know, blowing up over, um, all these kind of issues of public memory and memorialization, right? Why are these such hot topics? And and people will even kill and fight over these things is because of the power that's infused in these kind of conversations and how history is appropriated and used for power, right? With the Confederate monuments, why, why are people upset and arguing about that? That also plays into pioneer monuments. Why are people arguing? Um, why, why would people throw paint on a Brigham Young statue, be upset about the names of buildings that are named after slave owners or not acknowledging indigenous land and whatnot is because those, those narratives, when, when certain authorities or voices are propped up, right? It's um, again, it's still the these forms of of that's a form of colonization because it's a it's a power a power game of uh, the one who controls the story exclusively. They're the ones who get to drive the narratives, drive how people act. It shapes people's everyday decisions, whether they're conscious of it or not, right? Of and what we remember that there's an erasure of a lot of, of these injustices of, you know, massacres, dispossession, enslavement of peoples. And when you erase that and don't think about it, it's like, see no evil, hear no evil. But but you're then, it, in a sense, it's it's justifying the action of, of still perpetuating those legacies and saying, well, we're past that now. It's not true. You know, the, there's ways that these um, histories are, interconnected and intergenerational and and people don't want to be responsible for that accountable for that it's not it's not that you're guilty of what your ancestors did right but when you're continuing to feed the race race racist and unjust systems and structures that were set up by your ancestors that's the problem you know and and you're trying to justify it by saying they're not racist they're not problematic everything's okay you know that that's the issue and where i think your question of who's telling these stories that does matter because there's people who want to push others out and say this is the the story 
Yeah, so I have another question. You know, so imagine we have a Latter-day Saint that, that grew up in the church and heard the stories of the pioneers, and and they're a decent person and want to do the right thing, but they don't know where to start, and they want to learn about the indigenous peoples of this continent and how... Um, how how the church colon how the the settlers colonized this continent and how that plays into our how where where should they start like where would a beginner start and does your book cover these things would that be helpful like where would our some of our listeners start with these things so you know there's a lot of different kind of pieces out there um and it really depends where a person is coming from too. Uh, there's, um, I wrote for an instance an, an article for the Mormon Studies Review called in Indigenizing Mormonisms where it was a literature review of different, um, all kinds of publications, discussions already about um, indigenous experiences in, in just North America. Um, what what have scholars been studying? Uh, what are some key issues there? And and so there's different publications like Mormon Studies Review, the Journal of Mormon History, um, Dialogue. You know that that they have been encouraging these kind of conversations for a long time. Now there still needs to be more. And I actually come at it with a critical mind and eye of saying, okay, like. You have to read against the grain sometimes because scholars, we all are coming from our positionality and our lens. And I think that's being recognized a lot more instead of being this invisible authoritative voice um, that that we're acknowledging our own limitations from from our lens. Um, But then if it's like you said, say uh, a person who genuinely wants to learn this, but they weren't trained in grad school how to read um, these kind of academic journal publications because they're often written, they can have theory in them that go, I know it went above my head when when I entered graduate school and, and I had to kind of learn, you had to learn the lingo, the the terminology and, and this kind of... Um, form of conversation so it's like another language um so it it does matter as well of of kind of you can build yourself up to that of learning that kind of language but i think a good way for someone who may not be um you know pursuing graduate school and these kind of theories and such i i often recommend um there's a lot of conferences um, videos that are coming up, conversations, podca- podcasts like this one that are awesome for people to listen to voices like me talking to it and, and addressing those questions. Um, and, and we can point people in those directions. Like um, uh, there's also publications and, and different works out there like Darren Perry's book that just came out, The Bear River Massacre, A Shoshone History. The way he wrote it, um, it's it's great because Darren he is the was the chairman of the Northwestern Band of Shoshone, and he's a descendant of survivors from one of the most horrific massacres in American history, um, and the Bear River Massacre of eighteen sixty three. And although it was uh, committed by the U.S. military, um, in many ways the church 
was um, entangled with that very dark, dark time and episode and, and, you know, tragedy, to be honest, of, of his people, innocent peoples who were on their lands, um, were framed again as thieves, like, it, it was a competition and, and a tension over over land and, and access to um, ways of livelihood. Well, Darren, he writes this incredible story. You know, do I agree with everything he writes? No, I'm going to admit. And he's a friend of mine. He's awesome. But it, it gives us a window into these indigenous voices and and perspectives and experiences and he writes in a way that is accessible um it he's speaking all the time as well you can look him up where he comes to colleges he's been happy to talk to groups um a number of these talks have been recorded so i know he recently spoke at sunstone you know a, a conference that i'm talking some of these conferences that i'm talking about even in covid19 with a lot of our limitations of going places in person, I see this as actually developing more resources because these are becoming virtual meetings that anyone can chime into. They're accessible and they're they're creating resources, as I said, where they're being recorded. So you can look up Darren giving a presentation. He's come to talk at the Charles Red Center of Western Studies at Brigham Young University, and they've been recording those and posting those on YouTube. So I would recommend, you know, Looking up, for example, um, I on my on my website, farinaking.com, I shared these lists of, of some of these resources and then looking at the bibliographies, identifying these names of individuals like Darren Perry, and you can find them talking on podcasts, um, in the news, uh, videos. There's a lot of multimedia and different materials that are, are digestible and more accessible to people. Um, and then you build up to, you know, you can build up to and, and go step by step of uh, that, that personal study and learning for yourself. Um, Joanna Brooks and Gina Colvin have their Decolonizing Mormonism's book. I think that's written on an accessible level as well and gives a, a, a wide diversity of perspectives and insights there. Elise Boxer is another figure who, a historian who has spoken on podcasts with, um, I think it was Deseret News about the Indian Student Placement Program with Matt Garrett's book on that of um, making Lamanites and they had a conversation together. So that's on a podcast and um, there's been individuals who have been publicly speaking about this. They've been recorded. So the resources are out there. I think when people start to learn for themselves, that that's the first step is go and explore and take it step by step. But but you know a lot of questions will come up because it does go against the grain right i know when i was first exploring this it was really hard and you can feel like you're alone in it but i think the biggest piece of advice i would give to someone in that situation who wants to just begin to learn to understand and know what to do is um find community don't do it realize that that it's a very personal journey on one level that you're learning 
and you're taking it step by step and like with everything right we're gonna we're going to have our own way of interpreting things and judging them based on where we're coming from it's inevitable you know that's your brain that's processing it and and how you're relating to it and what will resonate with you um so there's that personal angle to it but you're not alone either and i think what's what is so important is engage in conversations take time and there is community out there there's groups like the global mormon studies you they have a website you can go to them and these are people who have been thinking about this not only in the united states but all over the world and it's incredible and you can um, see names there of scholars listed look up their work you can sign up for the listserv of global mormon studies they're they're on facebook you know social media is another great way you can connect with people that they have facebook pages they have twitter um, some instagram you know and there's also a woman in Mormon studies. It's incredible the work that women have contributed because a lot of times uh, what we experience is folks think, oh, the authority, you know, who's that voice? It's been heavily white male, but there are so many women who are doing groundbreaking work and contributing to this. So there's a website for women in Mormon studies. And you know that includes individuals like Joanna Brooks and Gina Colvin, who edited that um, seminal work, you know, decolonizing Mormon Mormonism, and um, the or organizations like um, who is it? Jana Reese, who is now president of the uh, it, it's the Mormon social sciences um, organization. So there's a number of different organizations that have community. They have networks that anyone can join in and it's all about learning. It's it's embracing the learning journey that we're learning from each other, we're exchanging because you can't do it all on your own. And um, it's been wonderful to see the work of so many incredible colleagues. I'm really excited about um, Amy Triot's forthcoming book about slavery in the church and forms of slavery of, of Mormonism and black experiences. It's a really exciting work coming out. And I learn about that from, you know, following things on Facebook and connecting with these networks like woman in Mormon studies and learning about her. So um, now at, at your fingertips, there's so many resources, there's so many ways to connect so that you can balance you know, that personal journey, but also um, have people to go to when you have questions and, and you're trying to hash out and really um, navigate what, what you're finding and being pointed to other things too that you might have missed or didn't know about. And I find a lot of people come to me because um, the, the lack of representation or misrepresentation of Native American and indigenous peoples is, it's, it's gross, it's horrible, you know? And so I try to connect people that it's also important to connect with indigenous communities, but not in a way of just taking that's important as well. Don't just say, hey, you know, tell me your story because knowledge is a gift. Knowledge is of great value. And in, and there's some, you know, there's important limits on that, right? As we know, when we have these conversations about the sacred and what is sacred and, and what can be shared or what's not appropriate to share or whatever, right? So learning about how to um, establish healthy relationships that are mutually beneficial, they are 
reciprocal, that reciprocity is also important in learning too, that we're not just takers and collectors of knowledge, but how can we also serve one another, support each other? And in that way, that's having the balance and harmony in our lives that that um, I believe, you know, the teachings of Hajo, uh, these kind of teachings of relations and how we support each other are are important and integral to the, to this as well, this learning process. Amazing. Thank you for <laughs> like, I'm, I'm processing a lot right now. I was thinking right. just now about how, you know, back in our day, people our age, you know, Dr. King, we, we just had MySpace when we were teenagers <laughs> and young adults, you know what I'm yeah. saying? And now we got all this information at our fingertips. And I feel like so many people just a little bit younger than us who haven't had to deal with this particular disadvantage of, you know, really this information overload. They, they seek the truth, but they don't know where to find it. And, you know, a lot of people, I think they underestimate something that you said, something I've never been able to articulate, but you just did so beautifully, this value of community. I find that a lot of the knowledge that I've gained as a result of this work that I'm involved in has come from putting myself within spaces where people are having these conversations that I don't know better to have. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And, you know, that is something that we're trying to create here, you know, with having you on the show, Dr. King is letting people know that this is a space they can come to, to at least have a, have a, have a beginning point. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, you know, granted, we, we take our conversations a little bit further here, but a lot of people who want to have conversations in the vein of activism through a Mormon lens, they at the very least know that they can come here and they can be begin to have conversations and perhaps start some new ones that they didn't think to have before. So I'm really glad that you brought up that value of community and also this this uh, idea of honoring knowledge. You know what I'm saying? Mm, right. That knowledge is a gift, which makes it something that is not just something you collect, but something you have to honor. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And that's mm -hmm. that's something I feel like we really try to do here is mm -hmm. we try to honor the scriptures and we try to honor the work that we do as Christians mm -hmm. by applying it in a way that is affirming and in a way that makes us become better people and helps others to do the same. So mm -hmm. I, am I, I just wanted to name that because it was just so beautiful and I wanted to make sure the listeners did not miss that you know what I'm saying so thank you. thank you for saying all that yeah and I think you worded it well too of that knowledge is also work you know it, it takes work and you earn it <laughs> whether it's in a graduate program you know in that kind of training when you're also on that personal journey um, you earn it and you work for it that that's a big sacrifice too and and I I think some people it, it's very hard for them to start that journey and to work. But that's where I want to encourage people. It is worth it. You know, it really is. And and you gain so much through that work and that effort. And it's like, you know, you got to exercise those muscles to have them really grow into what they can be. Definitely. Right. And thank you so much for the reminder that the accumulation of knowledge itself can be a colonial project if mm -hmm. you don't do it right. Yes. And I think that's yes. been the history of Europe of we're going to go around the world and collect these plants and document them and collect knowledge and collect... Steal spices and yes. never use them on our food. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah, sadly, you know, thinking about this talk, I, I recently... Sunstone had their um, virtual conference um, recently. 
And I was listening to the talk with uh, Sarah Newcomb was on it and Elise Boxer. And um, they were talking a lot about the um, these different conversations of of colonialism and uh, relations between the church and and Native Americans. Um, and something that was brought up, I, I wanted to follow up on. Elise had mentioned that there was a case in southeastern Utah of a doctor who was literally um he was grave digging more or less like taking uh, artifacts from the land indigenous land and collecting them going against uh, nagpra which is a native american graves and repatriation act graves protection and repatriation act that was passed in uh, the late 20th century um and so when she brought that up, I, I'm not going to go into the detail of, of the full context and everything. Um, what you just said here reminded me of that. And I did want to mention this um, because a big hot topic recently was Bears Ears in southeastern Utah that that gained national attention. And um, coming back circle here is yes knowledge accumulation and the language we use of collecting um collecting data or whatever we're collecting stories even um it is very sensitive in these kind of power dynamics and and even what we were talking about earlier in terms of who writes history and how they write it um that was the methodology of uh, a colonizing methodology. And that's where the language of decolonizing comes in because the colonizing methodology was, again, you extract, you take from another people and community to bolster your own, to feed into the metropole, the hegemon, you know, the, the main power source. It's, it's like vampire, uh, a vampire. You know, you're sucking the life from another to bring that in. And that also can play into knowledge and, and how you're treating another people. Um, what is the relation there? Is it equal? You know, is it reciprocal? And and historically, you had archaeologists, scholars coming in and taking, right? Taking and then running off and using that information they gathered to actually prop up and say things that justified um, colonialism, expansionism, you know, of, oh, we're more civilized. Sometimes unintentionally, they actually did provide a path and information that um, could be used to go against those very claims that they sought. But, you know, that, that goes into the intricacies of what people's intentions are and then what actually happens, right? The expectations and what happens. So in the case of where this intersects and comes together with bear's ears and such, is um, it was an interesting case uh, that also relates to Elise Boxer bringing up uh, the incident of, doc she was referring to a Dr. James Reed who committed suicide in 2009. He was a um, well-respected Latter-day Saint in San Juan County in Blanding, Utah, who was a physician, you know, saw as, seen as someone who served the community and, and such. Um, but he, he was acting like a tourist. He was collecting, gathering all these kind of artifacts and, and hoarding them, 
you know, in his home. And then uh, the law enforcement, I believe it was the FBI, got involved and realized what he was doing, that he was um, collecting and taking these items against, you know, the passing of laws like NAGPRA. And he he committed suicide about that time. Um, I remember meeting a, um, actually, she's a friend, and I remember having a panel about Bears Ears and its significance from Danae perspectives. And this friend, she brought up her name, um, is uh, Micah, and she brought up how she said she is um, Dene from that part of the country, and I'm rec I'm recollecting ex trying the best to represent what she said. I can't perfectly paraphrase it, but basically she said, "This is our home. This part of the land is our home. We don't come here like tourists." we're not tourists who are coming here and just, you know, collecting and taking things and, and ripping from the land and then going. Okay. And she helped to also refer to that same case of the doctor who was living there and he's collecting and taking. Now in the context of bear's ears, why was that so controversial and how does it relate to Mormonism and native Americans is that San Juan County, the, um, the white European American population who live over there, they are predominantly Latter-day Saint. And they predominantly descend from Latter-day Saint pioneers who are basically, you know, sent from the main Mormon corridor north and traveled south. And then they colonized that area. And over the years, over generations, they established, um, you know, a dominance, more or less. And in many ways, it, it turned into, um, it, there were times it was violent. It, there was times it was intimate, where, you know, they, the community there opened up a school for Indians, you know, but that also had a form of violence there with, with seeking to assimilate or, you know, detribalize Native Americans. And um, one of the, one of the most recent uh, violent conflicts was known as Posey, the Posey War, that a um, different colleagues, they're studying and working more on that. But that was where Paiutes and Utes of that area were basically rounded up, put in a prison camp in Blanding by, you know, essentially the white settlers who were predominantly Mormon. And uh, another way of recently dispossessing Native Americans and pushing them out violently or incarcerating them and imprisoning them, right? So how does this all lead up to the recent controversy of Bears Ears is you have indigenous people, Native American people saying Bears Ears is like a church to them. It is sacred. It is like the archives. It is a center of knowledge, not just um, in physical sense of it, but also spiritual knowledge of what it means to various indigenous peoples in that area. Sadly, it re it turned into a lot of um, division that were drawn in terms of binaries of Native American and Mormons, right? Because the um, descendants of Mormon white settlers who were still living in that part of southeastern Utah, they were pushing 
for having Bears Ears not be protected as a national monument and developing the area. And by development, you know, that means resource extraction and a way of, um, it, it essentially is deteriorating that land, right? Because when you extract from the land, you can't just put it back. When you take, it's taken, it's gone, right? And so this turned into and and is still a very sensitive and divisive divisive topic there. Um, but but in that panel that I had recently, everything kind of it all connects, and it's like connecting the dots and and going on a journey of trying to understand um, how this all matters. Is that when people start to respect and just respect and honor that places like Shosh Jah, as we call Bears Ears in Dene, when you respect that place is a temple, like a church, you know, as Latter-day Saints want their sacred spaces protected and they understand histories of victimhood and being marginalized, you know, they, they know that. We have that in our stories. They prop that. But when you really empathize and understand that and see you know, don't become what you always decried. Don't become what you always condemned, you know. Respect and honor. Those are the temples. Those are the churches of these indigenous peoples who have a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of these dark paths. I'm not, I'm touching the tip of the iceberg. I mean, these are, these are developments that need a lot of attention they need a lot of unpacking and discussing. Um, and it helps to explain why there's a lot of antagonism and tension in that area right now and why it's drawn on these categories and these lines like us versus them when it's really, it's not that, you know. When we all boil it down and you try to again just um, delve into it, you understand we're we're all human we're all people and yes people make mistakes but don't but but i think the biggest mistake in what we can't or don't shouldn't do and i want to say don't do is um don't keep trying to justify the mistakes of the past that's where we're committing those mistakes by trying to keep justifying it and trying to keep pushing it by saying things like oh bears ears you know it's not developed it's just wilderness it's it's all about what it's worth. Um, and this is where capitalism also is um, inseparable from the power and the colonial dynamics, right? Is that what what is it worth? Who defines what it's worth? Is it defined by a money value of what oil you can find there, what uranium, what kind of resources are under it? Or is it of worth because it is a sacred place, a temple, an archive, where you have archaeology, uh, what we call archaeological sites, but these are, you know, these are the sites of our ancestors and their footprints and their traces. Like those are our written documents in a way, you know, because those are the imprints of our ancestors and our stories are in them. And it's important for us. And that's where this, you know, what is knowledge, what's considered knowledge. Um, it's so important to connect and understand each other and learn, oh, you know, this is what it means. Because I'm going to admit, I would like, as I shared earlier, 
I was raised in a Latter-day Saint family. My mother is not Native American and she primarily, you know, raised us. But I also was connected to my Diné family and my father. And my father was raised by Hatatli, medicine men, you know, traditional healers. And though he decided to convert to the church of, and join the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I always knew from my dad that there were different ways of expressing the sacred and what is considered religious, that it wasn't only just going into church and the temple. I, I had an early exposure that people um, lived in different ways and, and it could be very, very different. And that's beautiful that you can still like see the beauty and all that. And there's ways that different people through even my parents' union, you know, that different people can come together and love and honor each other and approach each other with that love. So that's why, you know, what you said, it, it just sparked all those kind of connections in my head. And I, I wanted to be sure to bring that up. And yeah, thanks for letting wow, me that share is, that. <laughs> that is so beautiful. And thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and wisdom with uh, and expertise with us. That is truly a gift, as you said earlier. For me, I have one final question. And... It revolves around the usage of the scriptures because mm. our scriptures have been used to justify the conversion and colonization of well the entire world, the ins the enslavement of indigenous peoples and African peoples, and, and many more horrors you know including the extraction of resources and sending them back to well anyway, but there's a lot of good that can come out of the scriptures if used responsibly and wisely and in community and collaboration with all of the peoples involved. So what I want to ask you is, how does your research and your work, uh, what, if you're willing to share and offer that knowledge, how does your work impact the usage of the scriptures? How, what can we learn from you about how to better and more safely and responsibly interpret and apply the scriptures? I, I appreciate that question because <clears throat> again, I think I think of it very much um, the way I do with history, actually. Um, I had a friend recently post something on Facebook where she asked, um, can we believe in the Book of Mormon as um, a historical text or is it okay to think it's ahistorical or something? She had a question. Her question basically was about the history, um, the, the historical meaning um, and purpose of the scriptures. Like, can they be seen as a historical text or not? You know? Um, and... When she asked that question, that comes to a person's basic belief of, well, yeah, do you believe in these scriptures or not? You know, do you uh, believe they're talking about something that really happened or not? And um, for many people, they're taught to take texts at face value. They're taught, you know, accept this literally. Um, go and just embrace everything that it happened as, as, as it was told in that text. 
And something I'm really grateful for in my training and and what I've realized is, um, again, it relates to the ways I've been talking, I think, throughout our conversation is how even one turn, it can mean something different to another person. But yet we're we're like playing this game of trying to, can you guess what I'm thinking? Can you figure out what I'm thinking? I'm trying the best to act it out, to use a term that has some common meaning for us so that we have a common experience. And that's the way um, the scriptures are, is they they are like how historians we try to piece together a puzzle and we find these different pieces, but by itself, you know, um, you're not going to have the full picture. You might even take a piece and appropriate it it and say, oh, I have, you know, this evidence. So I know, you know, this this is, what I'm going to use as my compass. I'm going to use this to guide me. But yet they're missing, you know, the other pieces of it that bring it together. And for believers, um, I think a key part of that piece is revelation and discernment and prayer. I mean, I, I think uh, what I've honored so much and loved about indigenous studies and efforts to decolonize and indigenize is decolonize our spirituality and, um, and embrace indigenous spirituality that's always been so strong. And that's something I also uh, learned from my father and, and my father's family is that he knew from a young age how important prayer was. And there's some indigenous scholars I meet who go and give these big talks and have to go through a lot, even just with their speaking, because they talk to people who just constantly um, affront them, um, even by their questions. Their questions are just, there are offensive questions out there, you know what I mean? And they're like being put... um, like they're in a petri dish always being analyzed and pulled apart and this one scholar i remember and she she doesn't really see herself as a scholar she's more a storyteller um she told me how she would pray before she went out and and would talk and i also remember um in a lot of where their conferences or events even at at universities um if it's being supported and organized by Native Americans or indigenous people, many a times those meetings, they include prayer, you know, even at the university or whatever. So I find that is very powerful. And and at gatherings and Native American gatherings, you offer prayer over that food, right? So that that, um, connection with prayer being such a central piece to understanding scriptures, um, I think that's something that can go across many different peoples and across the board. So I know I, I feel like I'm going round and round here, but, um, but something for me that's important with understanding scriptures and how to use them responsibly is understand them as a, as a piece, and it's an important piece, it's a central piece, but it is only one piece. And there's other pieces of that puzzle that will help you to act responsibly. And it's a part of that work 
that work is do the work of, of going to understand it. And for me, you know, even that question of is this historical or not? Yes, it is, because history itself is this act of um, it's it's the effort and the action of trying to piece together what happened in the past. And there's no way, you know, we can't we don't have a time machine. We can't go back. And even if we did, we're limited through our lens. We, we don't have that omnipotence, you know, omnipresence of of what people arguably believe God has, right? And so when when we're limited by our window, um, we're doing the best we can to piece together and understand. And then, you know, for me, I do think having a sincere discernment, people can call that pondering, they can call it meditating, um, whatever you want to think about it, a processing and if if you do believe, you know, that there is external guidance with that, um, then that will help you to know how to act. But I certainly think, you know, piecing together and, and understanding that um, the scriptures, they are an important, an important tool for us, an important guide for us. Um, or maybe for someone, they're not as an important, but they are a piece of an important puzzle, of a greater puzzle of understanding of people. And then do your best to find the rest of the pieces that really bring a picture of, um, for me in the end, what really matters is, uh, is love. And though it might sound corny to people, um, maybe that love is better defined as the hojo that I was talking about, the harmony, and by harmony, you know, that that understanding, the greater tapestry, the greater um, interweavings of all these different people and where we're coming from, that it's respect for each other. And when you respect each other, you treat each other, um, you treat each other as you would want to be treated, right? You treat each other uh, with with dignity, with graciousness, with humility and that's what will guide you you know that that you see not even just humans each human as someone you want to treat with that dignity but also life life in animals life in the earth that nurtures and feeds us even if we don't believe like oh that's not human so it doesn't the water doesn't have feelings the rocks don't have feelings but i think this gets back to focusing on the interconnectedness of everything and the scriptures they have stories that will upset it's okay that they upset you it's okay that they have things you don't agree with it just because it is the scriptures doesn't mean you know it's saying this is this has uh, do everything that Alma did in the Book of Mormon, right? No, he, he made mistakes. It records people being human, that they went to war, that terrible things happened in those wars, that people did terrible things, eye for an eye or whatever, you know, and they were changing. That like to me is why I study history. I'm not, um, I'm learning not trying to just find heroes to praise and think that they're all perfect, but I believe that we can learn from from our human mistakes and that we can seek to be better. And it's, you know, a hard, a hard path for all of us, no matter 
who you are, how to find that balance in your life and what we call pursuit of happiness, to be happy and figuring out what that means for you. But these scriptures are to learn from, and that means, you know, learn from the mistakes and recognize them where they're there instead of trying to um, maybe justify them or, or even say, well, they made that mistake, so I'm going to make that mistake and have that interconnectedness and dignity be your guide in that way. I don't know. There's so much. Yeah, so much to say. <laughs> there really is. It really is. And, um, you know, as much as it pains me to say it, I think that is a good place for us to conclude for today. But you've really, I mean, I'll speak for myself. You've really helped me understand in new ways some certain things about the ways in which we had this conversation. Uh, first off, I think that's super important, but also the ways to go about navigating what we do from here. And uh, but even that conversation alone is going to be one for another day. And hopefully we'll get to have again someday. Uh, but, yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Farina King, for joining us here today. This has really been a treat and we will do our best. And I think I can speak for the both of us when I say this. We will do our best to honor what you have given us today. Thank you. Right. Thank you so much, Dr. King. This is uh, a, hopefully a blessing for, for both of us, um, mm. you as well as us and our listeners. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. And I really appreciate meeting with you and talking with you. And if people, you know, continue learning, just continue growing. And there are those growing pains, but it's worth it. It, it just really helps us, I think, to the more we learn, the more we can connect, the more we can respect and honor each other. And I'm just glad to share that whenever I can. And and please feel free to invite me again. I enjoyed talking with you and I think it's important to have these conversations. Do not threaten us with a good time. Oh yeah, because I'll have more questions. <laughs> Bet, you heard it. It's on, it's recorded. We have it, it's documented. She said, she said we could do it. Right. <laughs> but anyway, thank you again for joining us. We will uh, conclude here. We'll hope to have you back again to continue these conversations. And uh, thank you to our listeners for joining us for this conversation. Till we meet again, whenever we shall have one of these bonus episodes again. <laughs>